So this is the third talk in a series on the anatomy of ignorance. And uh, I can actually try to tie in that question that we just had, uh, maybe in some ways during the talk. Ignorance is a very, uh, for me, powerful way to look at our practice. In many traditions, the root of human problems is taken to be ignorance. Whether it's problems of suffering, interpersonal relationships, conflict, war, all the different ways that we don't realize our capacity for love and wisdom and manifest rather in difficulty and conflict, in many traditions, not all, the root cause is taken to be a a basic ignorance. We find that in Buddhist tradition, the understanding that really guides much of our practice. Ignorance is often taken to be the root cause, the among the three ways that we are taken to be off-center or lose our touch with our deeper nature, our deeper capacities. Uh, Those are taken to be often greed, aversion, or we would say compulsive aversion, and delusion. (coughs) Delusion, which is often seen as synonymous with ignorance, is often taken to be primary. And all of our practice can be seen as a way to get at an underlying ignorance. And similarly, in Western traditions, right at the beginning of Western traditions, we have uh, an understanding of ignorance as a root problem. And the quest for knowledge becomes right at the center of the, we would say, the beautiful aspects of Western culture. So we have back 2,500 years ago, we have uh, the figure of Socrates in ancient Greece who looks deeply at all of his beliefs and assumptions. He finds them wanting and says, everyone else thinks that they know. I do not know. I know that I don't know. I know that I'm ignorant. This has made me very unpopular when I mention this to other people. (laughs) And he, in fact, was executed by the Greek state or by the the, uh, local government because, at least in some ways, he wanted to look deeply into what was claimed to be knowledge, whether religious or about the natural world or about human beings. And that uh, stance of really a deep questioning and the whole quest for knowledge has been central um, in Western tradition. And we looked uh, two weeks ago at how this emphasis on ignorance is so fascinating because we also see an emphasis in our culture and in 
Western tradition. You can also find it in, I think, in many traditions and uh, certainly in some parts of Asian traditions and indigenous traditions, which is, we might say, an opposing narrative, which is that the basic problem is that some are evil. It's a different model, the model of good and evil. And I mentioned how we have a certain, I don't know if it's schizophrenia, but we certainly have a, a, a deep tension in our culture between seeing the problem as ignorance and seeing the problem as that some people are just bad or evil. And, you know, we have certain of our institutions, like universities, maybe scientific research, there the model is the quest for knowledge. And in other of our institutions, uh, it seems to be more the other model, you know, which um, you know, comes out of different aspects of Western, Western culture. So it's quite interesting. And we, we uh, um, you know, can see how that works. We can, see, uh, you know, we can see how some of our institutions, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think um, clearly much of our foreign policy is based on the good versus evil model. You know, we even have uh, presidents talking about the axis of evil. And we have, uh, I think, uh, our criminal justice system has gone back and forth between those models. Now, mostly dominated by seeing uh, people who, who are identified as breaking laws as bad people who should be punished, right? It wasn't always like that. You know, originally, I think partly for religious motivations, prisons were places where people could get better and come to know themselves. They were penitentiaries or reformatories. Now they are penal institutions. <laughs> so very interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. And, you know, if we, if we had uh, the overcoming of ignorance as our main model, we might have to do sports differently <laughs> or law differently, right? So it's quite interesting. It's really fascinating. And many people are trying to do law and not less trying to do sports differently, but many people are trying to do law in a way which is not based on so much of an adversarial system. Right? Anyway, very, very interesting. Now, in all of this, it should be, I think, clear, uh, or maybe, maybe not so clear yet, but, but that when we talk about ignorance, we're not simply talking about lack of knowledge. We're talking about a kind of deep unknowing. Certainly, knowledge of facts or of theories of certain aspects of the world can be quite important, but when we talk about ignorance, we're especially talking about uh, deeply knowing who we are. I think that's the case in both Western and in Buddhist traditions, that the sense of ignorance is about not really knowing ourselves deeply, not really knowing the human condition deeply. And so we can have a lot of factual knowledge and still have ignorance on this deeper level. And it's similar to the kind of ignorance that's identified uh, sometimes in Western psychology where the ignorance is said to be related to uh, what we're not conscious of, our unconscious, which may be driven by childhood conditioning. And there's a kind of deep unknowing, which is 
much more than simply not knowing this or that fact or field of knowledge and so forth. And so that's, that becomes uh, quite important because we're really wanting somehow to um, go beneath the surface and, and, and that becomes challenging in itself. And it's interesting that um, the traditions which have preserved that sense of ignorance as the, as the core problem typically emphasize the solution as wisdom, both Western traditions and Buddhist traditions. The way to overcome uh, ignorance is to engage in a process of learning which brings wisdom. And it's very interesting that um, in the Western culture, the wisdom dimension has been uh, lost to a large extent. When we talk about knowledge in contemporary society, we're talking more about factual knowledge and the scientific model has taken over. And formerly, you know, we had understandings of wisdom that came out of, particularly out of the Greek traditions. And I was part of a project, because some of you know I have a, a doctorate in philosophy and studied both Western and Asian philosophical traditions. And I was part of a project called Revisioning Philosophy, which was trying to bring wisdom more into Western culture. The success has been limited thus far. <laughs> <laughs> but we were we were we were interested. I was it was a great project. It was also great because it was connected with Esalen. So we had our conferences at Esalen, which was very wise. <laughs> and uh, in our project, we wanted to understand where did that disconnection occur historically? You know, how did that occur? And how might we bring the wisdom dimension back into Western culture? How might we bring it into contemporary universities? You know, and a lot of challenging questions. You know, but we, that was, our, that was our, our interest. So my, uh, uh, my plan for this series was to look at different ways that we could understand uh, ignorance. And it really becomes when we focus on ignorance, it's really focusing on what are taken to be the deep roots of our challenges, our problems. And it's, it's often um, uh, can be helpful because it gives us a map, but it also, for many of us, is starting by going right to the depths and identifying them. It can be, can be uh, challenging or sobering to see, oh my God, look at the depths of ignorance, you know. And we often, with a, even with our meditation, we, we just start really kind of at the other end, which is, let me just be mindful. Let me just be aware of what's happening. And that actually, you know, as we know and as we'll see more clearly, is a fundamental tool for working with ignorance. But it's interesting because it's, uh, in a sense, we have to start with where we are and mindfulness has the power to take us very, very deeply. But it's also helpful to have something like a map that identifies where is ignorance and how do we transform it. And that's what, we're, that's what this series is about. And it's also very interesting to ask, well, 
since I'm ignorant about certain things, how do I overcome my own ignorance? You know, where do I start? And obviously it's something that we couldn't do on our own because most likely we would be attempting to overcome ignorance using our own ignorance as a major tool. (laughs) And so we need help, (laughs) basically. And so what we really rely on, essentially, are maps of those who've done deep, or from those who've done really deep inquiries into how to understand where our basic ignorance is, and especially how to transform that ignorance. You know, that both, that deep understanding and the very practical set of uh, tools and uh, ways to guide us. And that's what, we're, that's what we're looking for. And so that helps us in a way to um, get out of the dilemma of not knowing what we don't know. <laughs> and then how do, we, how do we start? So in the series... I started uh, two weeks ago just with a general overview of the question of what are the different kinds of ignorance and how do we work with it. And I particularly am working with a model of looking at three main forms of ignorance. One of them more conditioned personally And we might say, we might use the tools especially of psychology and see the different kinds of personal conditioning, the kinds of uh, ways that we are not conscious of certain things that's more on a personal level. So this could be particularly connected with uh, how we might have had certain conditioning as children or For some of us, it may be certain traumas in our past that led us to uh, shut down. And all of us, and we'll we'll look at this more today, all of us have some ways that we are not conscious, that we are driven, that we have habits and patterns that drive us certain ways uh, that, that are connected with a certain degree of suffering in which there's some basic kind of confusion or self-deception, self-delusion, we don't see ourselves clearly. You know, and we can use tools of meditation practice, psychology, relationships, friends. Many of our friends will be quite ready to tell us where we're deluded. <laughs> and can be helpful, it can also not be helpful. <laughs> you know. And so, um, and the second whole area uh, was what I was talking about last time some, as social conditioning, that we are all conditioned socially in ways that we take certain things for granted that we don't quite see that we're doing so, and we maybe don't see certain things, or we have certain assumptions, and we, we, those become visible to us often when we visit other cultures, and we say, oh my God, these people's consciousness is like this, right? And they come here and they say, oh, these people in the U.S., their consciousness is like this, it's so this or that, right? And it's very interesting, and we can often see that most strongly around the categories like race and gender, age, nationality, level of education, 
where we tend to have certain assumptions or we see through certain lenses, right? And can be very, very powerful. You know, we get certain conditioning from the culture. You know, I was thinking that one of the most powerful ones is race. You know, we know that race is in large part an illusion. We know that from a scientific point of view. And yet we look through lenses and it deeply influences how we see people. Same with gender, same with age and all this. And there are certain kinds of ignorance which are there which uh, really um, influence a lot, uh, a lot of our lives, right? And last time we looked particularly, because it was Earth Care Week, I looked particularly at certain ways that we uh, don't see clearly there's a certain kind of ignorance related to ecological issues, particularly climate change, as many of my colleagues also all around the world were, were teaching in similar ways. You know, and that we could see that there are deep levels of confusion and denial, and it's both uh, sobering to see that, but also I, I hoped uh, could be also energizing and, and hopefully inspiring. So there is a first dimension of ignorance, which is more personal and we could say more psychological, a second which is more social, and a third we could say is more spiritual, to use, use that term, that there are ways that we don't see our deep nature. We're not fully in touch with our deep nature identified in, certainly in Buddhist tradition, other traditions, as being this brilliant manifestation of love and wisdom. Sometimes we touch that, or sometimes we may feel the unity with the natural world in this profound way. And part of the aim of spiritual practice, or I would say uh, right at the center of spiritual practice, is to feel that more and more, to be in touch with that deep nature, and to move out of certain uh, types of uh, ignorance. And in Buddhist tradition, that's particularly identified as not being in touch with the rapid flow of things, not really noticing in a deep way impermanence. Partly because our minds are uh, not, we, we're, we're not very concentrated, so we tend to make everything solid. We make objects solid, we make experiences, people solid. When the mind gets quiet and still, we see in a different way. And things appear more as this impermanent flow and everything becomes more like a field of energy and a sense of flow. And because our minds are relatively untrained, we solidify things and we see the world through concepts. And we don't see accurately in that sense. That's why meditation training becomes so crucial. We don't see impermanence. We also don't see how with things being so rapidly moving, it's unwise to try to grab hold of things, people, experiences, and so forth, for our happiness. That happiness comes more from a deep resting in experience, non-grasping and letting that love, compassion, and wisdom come forth. And yet we, as it were, look for happiness uh, all of us, to some extent, by grabbing hold of things. And wisdom would tell us that that's not going to give any lasting happiness. It can give happiness that lasts for a while, maybe. But it doesn't give us lasting happiness, and it doesn't give us the deepest happiness, which is the happiness of peace and understanding. And then thirdly, related to this, uh, there's a pointing to how we're also confused about ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves as 
very separate beings, cut off from others on our own and so forth. And that also is taken to be a kind of ignorance. And so in the, in the course of the series, I, I wanted to give attention to all three of these. Last time we looked at one aspect of social conditioning, we might say social ignorance, and we could deal, deal with a lot more. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm inclined to come back to that later. Today I wanted to look particularly at the, uh, some of the uh, manifestations of our personal ignorance, our psychological ignorance, which a lot of us have looked a lot at, I think. You know, so this will connect, uh, culturally, this will connect with a lot of what is there for us. And then we'll come uh, at a future time uh, to look at the kind of ignorance that's there more on a spiritual level. So I'm finding that though looking at those three levels of ignorance can be, for me, very helpful. It's also, in a way, very contemporary. It's really connecting some of the riches of Western culture, its understanding of individuals through psychology and the whole uh, emphasis on uh, social justice, on democracy, that I think is one of the uh, beautiful fruits of Western culture. And it's really uh, bringing these together with the deep uh, practices of meditation and cultivation of wisdom and equanimity. For me, this is very exciting. And I tend to see that unless all three are brought together, we will still have dimensions of ignorance. And there, of course, someone, you know, maybe coming in 30 years will say, well, it's very good, Donald, those three points, but you left out this whole massive area. How could you have done that? Because that's, that's what happens with history, right? People, people do their best in their own historical time. You know, and we always, people at later times are always saying, hmm, they just didn't see that one. <laughs> Right? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, and we, we, we try as best we can to almost come out of our conditioning to see as clearly as we can, but it's hard. Right? And, and so, um, but I think, but I could say that unless we bring in all three of those areas, we'll, there'll tend to be distortions. You know, and if we, don't, if we uh, don't bring in the psychological dimension and really look deeply at our own personal conditioning, we may, if we are spiritual practitioners, tend to engage in what sometimes is called spiritual bypassing, where we want to get so much into the spiritual dimension and meditate that we don't look at our personal stuff. Right? And it often can manifest, and that's some of the background for a lot of these uh, so-called scandals in spiritual centers, where everyone wants to be spiritual, and they don't look at certain issues like giving in to a hierarchical authority or don't look at issues related to sexuality, or don't look at issues related to um, you know, where one's aggression is coming from. You know? And so uh, that, that would be a danger if one doesn't look into psychological. If one doesn't look into some of the social conditioning, we could also uh, tend to, I think, not really see um, some major issues. And we would tend to bring those issues into our spiritual community, you know, where we would tend to, okay, well, we have a great spiritual community, but we haven't looked at gender issues. And why is it that there are so many uh, male teachers and so few female teachers? That might be that might be an issue. Or 
we might not look at diversity issues, you know. So here at Spirit Rock, it's really a, a major effort, which is challenging to look at diversity issues. And there's that sign as we come to Spirit Rock, Spirit Rock is committed to diversity. That's saying that unless we look at the social conditioning, our community is going to be distorted to some extent. And it's not easy, right? It's not easy to do that. And we might look at, you know, we might talk about other issues. Many of my friends in Thailand and in Asia were concerned that Buddhist meditation will become uh, a, a, simply a province of the privileged in America looking for a little bit of relief from a difficult life, and that they'd use it as a way to escape from really dealing with the major social issues. Right? Some of them, you know, that's what their concern is. You know? And then if we don't deal with the spiritual dimension and don't, we, we, lose, we really lose the depth dimension. If we don't look at those issues of what is the nature of suffering, if we don't really look deeply into the mind and develop the capacities of concentration and insight, then we, uh, we also will have distortions, you know, if we don't go there. You know, I think we can see this. Um, we also will lack certain capacities for, for dealing with uh, some of our most challenging issues. And so I think one of the most beautiful and promising developments is where the way these are coming together. You know, one of the most exciting areas in contemporary culture is the intersection of meditation and psychology. You know, and there's some bringing in the social that's a little less developed. Anyway, it's, very, it's quite exciting. So let's look at the personal uh, some. Let's look at this dimension of personal, uh, personal ignorance or, or the ignorance that we can look at through, sometimes through psychological lenses. What is that like? What is that about? And I think I'll probably be doing this in two, in two parts. I had a whole map, which I want to get to you, of how after we see the, the way that ignorance is formed on a more personal level, how the steps that we take to transform that ignorance. And I identified, I think, 11 different steps and I was really excited by that. I was going to, um, but I, I think the full elaboration of that's going to have to wait till next time. But I'm going to give some of them so we get started. Okay, so it's very interesting uh, to to look at how, in our personal functioning and looking at our personal histories, there are certain kinds of ignorance that we have. You know, and a lot of the again Western psychological emphasis on how we are unconscious, and talking about the unconscious brings that out in very full ways. And it's really based to some extent on very normal human uh, ways of functioning, which is that we necessarily have limited attention. We cannot attend to everything that's happening. And so a lot of what we do and this is just the way the brain works, the way our whole system works, it's based on a large amount of what we're, how we're actually functioning being uh, unconscious. You know? So, for example, all of our digestion is occurring quite unconsciously, quite naturally. If we had to be there and say, go large intestine, you know, do this, <laughs> you know, do that, it would be... Uh, be very tiresome, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do much else, right? You know? And similarly, 
uh, we, you know, mo the scientists would say that we all have all sorts of neural pathways that basically can function to have us do certain things without us paying much attention to them. Originally, we may have had to learn them and give attention to them. Something like driving a car, riding a bike, you know, maybe even a lot of, I think a lot of other activities we do, um, you know, playing a sport, um, even meditating. At first, we, we need to give a lot of attention to it, something like riding a bike, right? We give a lot of attention to it. We have to have a lot of de deliberate attention. At a certain point, we know how to do it. There are a bunch of established neural pathways, and the actual consciousness of all that we have to do recedes into the unconscious, right? Something like that. And that's true for a lot of other, other things, other things that we do. And we uh, often, because attention is limited, we just focus on certain things, and we may not notice other things. You know, there may be all sorts of things going on. Sometimes when I'm talking here, and everyone's attending very wonderfully, sometimes deer will come very nearby, right? And the attention is drawn. And for a few moments, you lose the, the gift of my wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? And our attention goes elsewhere. And a lot of psychologists have really experimented with that and found that, you know, there are a lot of things happening. We just don't notice. Some psychologists gave people a, had people do an experiment where, and I think you've probably seen variants of this, where, where um, there were three people throwing a basketball to each other, and the uh, subjects in the study were asked to count the number of times that the ball gets tossed between the three people. And then they had um, in the midst of this, and you see, there are different variants of it, sometimes a man in a gorilla face comes through the crowd, right? And sometimes it's someone else dressed up in a certain, in a very strange way, walks through among the basketball players, and because they're so focused on the balls, typically almost no one notices the gorilla <laughs> walking through. How many of you know of such studies? They're, they're really interesting, right? Because they show how when we get focused, a lot we're just not conscious of, right? And there, there are all sorts of other ways that we uh, select out certain data, we select out certain things. Another, another experiment was done to measure a certain degree of anxiety about sexuality. And they had an experiment where they actually gave people an image, and they had um, ways to test where the eyes went. They gave people an image. The image had a torso of a naked woman in the foreground and a man sitting in the back. And they found that the people who, in other ways, measured higher for anxiety about sexuality, uh, their eyes went almost entirely to the man. Right? And, this was, and when, when they were asked, did you do this, it was unconscious. Right? There was a lot of unconsciousness, and there are all sorts of ways that, this, that we function like that. Now, some of that is normal, but one of the ways that that becomes problematic <coughs> is that we develop a lot of habitual tendencies, particularly based on certain difficult or early childhood experiences, and we develop these unconscious patterns that can be quite negative. You know, we also develop a lot of positive patterns, right? 
and we have we generally most of us are a mix. We have <clears throat> we have patterns now. Psychologists and and again meditative, meditatively uh, uh, inspired practitioners are particularly interested in at what are the unconscious patterns which are connected with our suffering. You know, and there's a way in which uh, when we look <clears throat> deeply and carefully, and many of us have done this in psychotherapy. You know, how many of us have done at least some psychological work or psychotherapy? Um, yeah, it's almost virtually everyone. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> really part of the <clears throat> focus often is to see to what extent I am still being ruled by unconscious patterns which get me in trouble, right? And there could be uh, all sorts of patterns like that. And I've mentioned some of them. Um, the, you know, and so the kind of ignorance that we're looking for here is to see, are there deep unconscious patterns which are behind certain kinds of my suffering? And that they can be identified with different kinds of language. Uh, some of the ways that I've learned to talk about them are in terms of underlying core limiting beliefs. And they might be a limiting belief such as, I'm not okay as I am, or I'm not lovable, or there's something wrong with me. It can be about oneself, they can be about one's relationships, or <clears throat> my needs will not be <clears throat> will not be met. Or sometimes, if something happens, if there's if something bad happens, it's my fault. And there can be these these limiting beliefs which develop, uh, and you know, we can see how certain life experiences will lead in that direction. I've given the example a number of times of the person who is raised to think that being angry is bad. Uh, and maybe at age three or four was told in explicit and implicit ways, don't be angry, being angry is bad. It's, I think it's a conditioning that's quite common for, for many of us. And that person develops a kind of deep belief Anger is bad. That could be also a kind of limiting belief. Some psychologists call these schemas, or they're, they're basically become organized, ways we organize experience, and there are whole sets of neural pathways which are involved here. So the person who is, has been conditioned to have the belief anger is bad will tend, when anger comes up in experience as a child, will tend to suppress it, saying, I shouldn't be angry. If the person gets angry, will tend to be judgmental of himself or herself. Will tend to be judgmental of the playmates who get angry. Bad boy, bad girl, shouldn't be angry, right? Something like that. And then that person, at a later age, will start, maybe discover that one of the challenges in relationships or in some other area is that uh, uh, the person is very uncomfortable with either receiving anger and is incapable of expressing anger. 
and a lot of issues arise. Related to that person goes to a therapist or whatever, or explores it in meditation and begins to look at that and it takes a lot of time. And, and the work might be over time to somehow access that deep underlying belief. You can't do that quickly, often. You know? um, other beliefs might be about the world. People are dangerous, or I can't trust them. You know, and these are the negative limiting beliefs. Most of us also have more positive and constructive beliefs. It might be that I can, in general, trust people, or my needs will be met, in general. So there can be the positive beliefs as well. The ones where, there is, where the focus particularly is on the, is on the ones we might call limiting, limiting beliefs. They might be, again, related to early experiences of, let's say, abandonment. Another one of the examples I gave is, let's say, where there was a divorce when the child was five or ten. And that child could develop a sense that uh, people who love me will abandon me, which will then go into relationships. The issue will be there, or will be there in general. So there can be a background of a sense of abandonment, or there can be some kind of uh, situation where certain needs were not met, or where there was abuse. Um, most people, a very large percentage of people who are uh, addicts have something like a deep limiting belief about not being okay that gets actually translated into a physiological level and a need for addictive substances you know, by a lot of research. And the limiting belief is often, I am not okay as I am. And often there can be a certain amount of uh, pain there from the past experiences, which leads those persons to, to addiction. And so there can be a, this whole range of um, limiting beliefs. Do you get, we get a sense of these? And um, the challenge is somehow, and, we can, and some of us maybe can see Maybe we can see from looking from the outside at someone, we could see how someone with a sense of, I can't trust people to be there, would develop issues in relationships, right? And would see uh, you know, a, a friend or a partner who, uh, let's say, is not there at a particular moment of need. There might be a very, very strong reaction where the person might... Uh, be extremely fearful of a partner uh, not being there at certain times or going away or taking, you know, taking a business trip or whatever. That all could be there. Are we getting a sense of these limiting beliefs? And maybe we, maybe in some of our own work, maybe we've been able to identify them. The, the ones about a sense of uh, uh, not being okay is very pervasive in the culture. And I've particularly seen this uh, by the work I've been doing for like 10 or 12 years on working with the judgmental mind. And I've worked with a lot of people around a lot of these limiting beliefs and have developed ways to access them, ways to access them. Because typically these are um, not accessible, right? If they're really unconscious, if they're aspects of our ignorance, they are running us and we all have certain 
programs, as it were, which are running ourselves. And the kind of work that we need to do, and I think I'll talk more about this next time, but the kind of work that we need to do are to, is to uh, start to access that, uh, those limiting beliefs. And we can do that with mindfulness practice, sometimes with psychological work. And it's um, a challenging area. So let me mention, I'll just mention these 11 steps, okay? And maybe get us going. Okay, and then I'll have to come back and work with them in more detail. Um, and again, it's, it, it's challenging because actually, um, you know, it's, it's challenging to access our own ignorance because typically the ign- part, of the, part of what ignorance is is having certain mechanisms that prevent us from knowing. <laughs> right? Sometimes they might appear as defense mechanisms or different psychological mechanisms that uh, make it hard to see really what's there. Um, And there are are a lot of such mechanisms. Maybe I'll talk about those also next time because I had a list of like 10 or so mechanisms that, you know, like uh, projection, you know, the phenomenon of projection where we don't want to see something in ourselves, but we see it, see it in another. We don't run and recognize something in ourselves. You know, the, Jung, the psychologist, said that which we don't really face in ourselves, we will tend to project out into the world where we encounter it as demonic. It's quite a strong statement, right? That which we don't see in ourselves, we will tend to project outward. So there are different mechanisms. We have certain mechanisms of self-deception, of projection, of uh, repression, of denial, and so forth, you know, to keep us balanced and you know, keep us intact. Because the, the other thing that I didn't say about those limiting beliefs was that at the point where they were formed, they were important and useful, beneficial in a way. In other words, they made sense. That child who formed the belief, anger is bad, did so with the understanding that in following that dictate of the parents, let's say, that person would continue to get uh, nurturance and love. And if the person did not follow it, at least in the mind of the child, that would be cut off. So it made total sense at that point. All of these limiting beliefs make sense. They just don't make so much sense 30 or 40 years later. Right? That's, that's the problem with all these. They get formed. They make a certain sense at the time, the child who was abandoned is desperately trying to make sense of this very painful situation and comes up with the idea, I'm to blame. You know, it's very common. I mean, I, I know personally a number of people who had divorces when they were under 12 and who formed something like that view. How many people at least know of people who might have something like that? It's quite, it's quite common, you know, and we can have, we can have compassion. And, Again, I, I've mentioned uh, each of the last times, one of the benefits of looking at things from the point of view of ignorance is that it leads to compassion. Because everyone is essentially doing as well as he or she can. You know? And that we have these experiences from the past which can really be hard and can cause us to lose ourselves or lose our depths or lose our nature. And the other, the positive thing also is that this is all really workable. We can 
with the right conditions and guidance, we can go to the depth of our personal psychological ignorance and transform it. I believe that, and I've seen that, and I see that in, in working with people a lot. Okay, so let me briefly mention these, and we'll have a little bit of discussion. So, 11 steps to, uh, no, okay, no, there's just 10. Okay. Okay. 10 is better. <laughs> Very, has a lot of cultural resonance, right? Okay. So, uh, I'll mention these 10. Uh, so, essentially we start, uh, one way to start is starting with our own experience. We may use you know, meditation or psychological work, but we start just by looking at our own experience where we are. We don't, and we may have a map about the whole inquiry, but we start where we are. So, secondly, we, we especially may use the, ter- the um, power of mindfulness to just start looking and noticing experience. Mindfulness becomes a tool that lets us access the depths. And when we practice mindfulness without an agenda we, and without adding new input, we really make it possible for what is hidden to reveal itself. And it, it does over time. It's really quite miraculous. We, and it's, it's very connected with other techniques. The, you know, the classical techniques of uh, Freud, for example, was free association, where people just got in a relaxed state and they let their mind go where it does. This has a lot of similarities to mindfulness practice, and that would open up to potentially what was, what was hidden. And so we work especially with direct experience. We try to stay with direct experience because that, rather than our thoughts, when we stay with our body sensations, our emotions, and really track thoughts, starts to, starts to open up things. We also have to hold all this with a certain degree of compassion. As we're growing especially more deeply into the personal patterns, compassion and loving-kindness are really, really key. One of the ways that we start accessing the deeper patterns is that we see where there's some dissatisfaction, some conflict, some problems. Sometimes those become the doorways for us. You know, and classically, like for the Buddha, it was for him looking at aging, uh, illness, death. You know, sometimes for us it's a crisis that really opens things up for us. So, but in a daily basis we can look where there's some tightness or constriction. That can, and really pay attention to that. That can often be a doorway. You know, so when I work with people with judgmental mind, we start tracking the judgments, but we also start seeing where are the judgments strong? What does it feel like in the body? What's it like? And then we start saying, Look for the patterns. Look for the deeper patterns. And that starts to get us closer to this territory. You know, so for me, one of the major patterns that I was looking at when I was doing a lot of personal work was, as a story that I've told from time to time, of being in a work situation and being really judgmental because someone didn't listen to me. You know, and there was some kind of pattern that I had that, about not being listened to that was very triggering, which a lot of us have. You know, a lot of us have some version of that. And so we start seeing the patterns. For me, it was, okay, when I don't think I'm listened to, I get judgmental. And for me, it was I also withdraw emotionally. So we start seeing some of these patterns. That starts to uh, get closer. We look for the patterns. 
And over time, we may start to get in the territory where we're seeing, oh, there's a limiting belief here. Oh, I really just don't like anger. Oh, oh, this has something to do with abandonment, someone might say. And we start to get closer. And often this really is helped by having a guide or a mentor. We start getting a sense of the limiting beliefs. We start to see them in different situations. When I was able to see, I didn't, don't like the sense of not being listened to, I started seeing in all sorts of other parts of life. We start becoming like detectives about our own underlying limiting beliefs. And that's where it can get very exciting, you know, that, that there's a real sense of inquiry, you know, and, and we can get actually really interested in difficult experiences because it's going to reveal something. Oh, I can't wait till I get judgmental again. <laughs> you know, because I'm starting, I'm seeing, oh my gosh, it's so interesting, right? And so we really have to have an interest in our dysfunctional patterns. And the mindfulness and the compassion balances that, makes that possible. And as we go further into it, we see the limiting beliefs, and we start to also develop alternative ways of encountering the same situation. We develop almost like alternative core beliefs, like it might be anger is okay and it's part of the human condition, right? Or, uh, you know, I will be, uh, I have a sense of, may have a sense countering the sense of abandonment, that uh, uh, my essential, you know, that uh, some people will stay with me, could be something like that, that we develop maybe in certain relationships and so forth. And we develop those alternative models and we start shifting the center of gravity away from the old limiting belief, by, especially by actually developing new ways of being. Meditation can help, help a lot. We do that at first in a protected environment, often meditation, maybe therapy, and then we gradually integrate it and bring it out into our daily lives. And then we're done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, reflections or questions? So, I guess the, the point is to start with mindfulness and really start tracking where it, it feels some, like some, some issue, problem, tension. Please. Um, yeah. So, we were talking about how some limiting beliefs are they got developed yeah. as, as uh, survival mechanisms. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I could see, you know, the anger thing, and, but how about feeling unlovable? Yeah. Feeling that you're not okay. Yeah. How does that serve you when you're small? So, how, do, how does that, how does, it's partly to understand this idea that these, um, these um, limiting beliefs often were protective or had a positive value initially. So how does the limiting belief that I'm not okay or I'm not lovable, which is, again, very, very common, or there's something wrong with me, how does that, um, how does that, uh, how is that in any way positive, right? Or how, how does that protect us? Any, anyone want to respond? Yeah, Scott? It's, it's a self-punitive. Yeah. Um, uh, 
to think I'm not okay is already taking the initiative on a problem, on, on a threat, um, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a song from Eve Decker who wrote a song called Simple Truth, which is on uh, YouTube. And she's doing a whole album on this. In, the, in, the, in that song, there's the line that when I judge myself like that, I can do it before others do it to me. It's preemptive. And I think, yeah, please, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, actually, I have a different response. That if, if you believe that someone thinks that you're not okay, yeah. you're not good, it can be a motivator for you to behave in a way that you think is going to please that other person and perhaps change their yeah. opinion of you. Yeah, so it can be a basis for action to, uh, uh, it takes us out of our center, you know, and but it can be a whole strategy to get what we need, right? Mm -hmm. To get something from another or, you know, if I, and let's say that I get that view from, you know, one person I work with had something like that, which was very clearly from his father and his brother, okay? Mm -hmm. And for him to accept that view let there be some harmony with his father and brother, you know, and let him, you know, he, he, he was uh, having this negative view, but he was still getting fed and housed, right? And to reject it would put those survival aspects in jeopardy. So it's, it's strange, but it, even, though, even that sense of unlovability has its positive aspects, yeah. Um, please, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, and I think that that can be blurred, by especially when you're younger. Yeah. Um, but I, I think also there's sort of this, I think going back to the sense of feeling very separate from other people. Yeah. And when, when you feel that when you're younger and there's sort of this comparison thing that can start happening. Yeah. Where, where you get these illusions, illusions that other people feel better or happier or yeah. feel loved or feel good or there's you know they feel successful and then there's this sense of differentness and separateness and you're it's um, it's this lie that starts to like build on itself yeah you know from a young age that that um, that other people are lovable but you're not and because of what you're feeling inside and there's this illusion that they're happier or they're better or something yeah. Like that yeah, very, very nicely said this. Uh, I'll repeat it uh, um, briefly, but that sense that can develop of being connected with being, let's say, thinking oneself unlovable, that it's connected with maybe sense of separation from others, uh, some kind of almost like a projection that they are okay and everyone else is okay and I'm, and I'm not. And it can be there for all sorts of reasons. You know, uh, we've talked uh, just briefly at times just about something like body image. And this actually shows the interconnection of the personal and the social. We can, from the society, we can have certain body images, which becomes a whole basis for comparison and for it can hook on to that unlovability belief and become very, very strong. And 
you know, the sense of separateness, again, there are different ways that there's also social conditioning around that. So, um, very, uh, very thick conditioning, right? Yeah. Did I miss something, anything in what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Um, here and then to the back, and then probably we'll have to finish up, please. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, <coughs> excuse me, I did not have the pleasure of hearing either of your other talks on ignorance, but my own thinking, just listening to you now, is that there's so much fear yeah. underneath that, that you can't even begin to work on the ignorance without digging even deeper and thinking about what are you afraid of. Yeah. And it just it comes out as ignorance in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah, so really uh, pointing to the role of fear that is very hard even to go into there because it's like the uh, doorways to these inner sanctums are guarded by fierce animals, <laughs> almost, like, almost like the old mythologies, right? That if you really want to go more deeply, you have to deal with fear. Fear is pretty deep. And it, it's, it's at a very deep level. And um, I think the first talk I mentioned that I, I, I've always been very struck by something that Stephen Batchelor said, where he said that uh, the emotional counterpart of ignorance is fear which isn't in the text, but I, uh, to the best of my knowledge, but it's actually, I find that very, very helpful. And it really, and other people talk about sometimes, some people more in, uh, in certain contemporary uh, um, ways of talking, sometimes say it's either fear or love, right? It's going to be there. And so, yeah, it's a really great point that as we go into this transformation of ignorance, we have to have ways of uh, um, working with fear and anxiety. That's where the <coughs> compassion comes in, the mindfulness, the community. When I work with people on judgmental mind, community is a very important aspect because, for one thing, just to know that other people have the same conditioning. That's why I like to sometimes have people raise hands and, and look around. It's very, very helpful because part of it's really related to some of what you were saying. Your name is? Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley. That, that there's often, with a lot of this, there's a sense of isolation. And, you know, uh, one person has written a lot about shame, uh, Brenley Brown, I think I may have, I don't know if I gave this last time, but she said that shame, which is often very connected, is part of what brings about the fear. Shame is based on silence, secrecy, and judgment. And we can have, and those factors all make it harder to look in that sense of isolation, secrecy, and then that's why community, uh, a place where there's community of empathic people starts changing things. Because when one acknowledges some of these beliefs more publicly, say, oh, other people share that. Oh my gosh, gosh. Two-thirds of this room think I'm unlovable, <laughs> you know, or there's something wrong with me. And I won't ask for hands on that quite yet. <laughs> when, when we do that, it actually, there's something reassuring about that. It's, it's because part of all of this, part of the unlovability or the sense of inadequacy, again, very common in this culture, is also the sense that I am uniquely problematic. It is my unique problem to be the way I am. You know, I think it's the shadow side of individualism. <laughs> you know, uh, but it's very, it's very interesting. And so, um, maybe last one and then we'll, well, then we'll close. I think it really ties into what you just said about um, 
Yeah. Even though there's a resonance of who would say it was painful, yeah. it's familiar. Yeah. And to step out of that becomes very enlightening. Yeah. Because it's a community all we know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's beautiful comments, really, about, I, I love the term sacred wound. I think it's like, you know, it's like that uh, uh, powerful story uh, from um, Rachel Naomi Remen tells of a young man who was uh, um, in his 20s, had a form of cancer, had his leg amputated, and was bitter and angry for months and months, but he stayed working with her, and very amazing stories. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll tell the full story next time. But the upshot of it was that at the end of a year and a half of very intense work, uh, he revisited a drawing he had done initially. He was asked to do a drawing of how are you, and it just showed a shattered vase. That was who he was. And then when he came back a year and a half later, he... he um, looked at the vase and he redrew it. He says, it needs a few other changes. And he showed a light coming through the holes in the vase. And he said, that's where the wound or the difficult areas where the light comes through. Quite, quite beautiful. And so that sense of uh, sacred wound, we can really have a sense that you know, our, our own difficulties or shortcomings are actually the places where we potentially can grow develop greater wisdom and compassion, that we each are given a certain um, suffering. We're each given a certain things. And the uh, positive way to frame it, really, is that uh, this is all workable. And my invitation for the next time, and I guess I'll be back to continue in two weeks, would be just to um, look at these issues using the tools you have, but we might all particularly work with the tools of mindfulness and holding things with compassion. And you can work with mindfulness, particularly with places where it feels a little, things feel a little bit stuck. If you want to work, for example, just with the judgmental mind, because that's, that's, again, something I work with a lot with people, that is, you follow that, you will get right away to your limiting beliefs. <laughs> I can guarantee that. And so you might follow, just follow when you judge yourself. Track that. Track that every day. Start to feel, start to just notice when the judgments are there. Then also notice uh, when they're there in a strong way. What's it feel like in the body? And then start, if you can, to see what are the patterns. And sometimes we do this after the fact. You just had a difficult encounter six hours ago. And what was the stimulus? What led you to, where did you go in your mind? And start to see patterns. And that will get us on the way. Yeah. You could do that, yeah. That would also get you there. Yeah, you could, uh, any kind of judgment. Yeah, and that will, that will start to open up the territory. Remember to do something like loving-kindness or compassion practice, because that's important as we go into this, because there is a certain amount of pain there. And it's really important to hold it with compassion. So thank you for really being uh, deeply present as we explore this territory. And may, uh, may the fruits of our time together be offered out beyond these boundaries for the benefit of all beings.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.